Revelation chapter 7 is where we are in our study, just walking through uh, the last book of the Bible, uh, the revelation of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And we are still in the period of the respite between the sixth seal judgment and the seventh. Uh, you remember in Revelation chapter 4, John is caught up into a throne room in heaven. And there in heaven, he sees all the things that are uh, in the throne room of God. And he describes them with, uh, with some detail. And we looked at who was on the, on the throne and who was around the throne and, and who was near the throne. And all of the things, the living creatures and the elders and, uh, and all of those. And we looked at God seated on the throne. And also, we were introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ. You will remember that there was a scroll in the hand of God that was sealed with how many seals? Seven. Seven seals. And um, the question was asked, who is worthy to take the scroll and to break the seals? And there was no one found in heaven, on earth, or under the earth who was worthy. And John began to weep and weep uncontrollably. Uh, but one of the elders said, John... Don't you cry, for there is one who is worthy, and he is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And when John turned to look, expecting to see a lion, he saw a lamb. The lamb which was standing as though it had been slain before the foundation of the world. And we spent some time talking about the lion-like lamb who is worthy to take the scroll and to break the seals. And what we learned in chapter 6 is that with each breaking of the seal of the scroll, that the wrath of God was poured out in judgments upon the earth. And we made our way through each of the seals all the way until we got to the sixth seal. Uh, for example, in the first seal, we see that this is kind of the, the Antichrist system that's going to be in the world. Now, the, the first horse, uh, the first one, the first rider on the horse is not the Antichrist, but it's the one that's going to usher in the system where everyone is going to be saying peace and safety and set the world for the Antichrist to come and present himself in the temple <coughs> as God. And then we saw in the second seal that there was no more peace, that peace had been taken from the earth. And you remember that we looked and said that while people were saying peace and safety during the time of the first seal, that sudden destruction will come upon them. And that's when it begins to happen in the second seal. In the third seal, there was um, uh, the, the judgment of God poured out primarily on the lower income, the, the poorer people. Uh, it was the wheat and the barley, and, and there was great famine in the land, followed by the fourth seal, death and Hades, who came on a pale horse or an ashen horse. We paused at seal number five because in seal number five, it wasn't God's wrath poured out on the people who were doing evil and, and things upon the earth. But the fifth seal relates to the martyrs who uh, are being martyred in the midst of the tribulation and have, have been called to heaven and found their way underneath the altar um, uh, uh, in the throne room of God. And then we saw the sixth seal, and the sixth seal was terror. Um, and the sixth seal was so devastating, probably by this time, nearly 40% of the population of the, of the globe has been, um, has been killed, has been put to death, has been slaughtered. And it's so much so that we saw in this sixth seal that all of those people, for example, who were described in Psalm 2, who were doing their best to, to cast off the bonds of God and doing their best to, to break His fetters and cast off. They didn't want God to be there. They were experiencing the wrath and the judgment of God. And though in seal number 1 they were saying peace and safety, by the time we come to seal number 6, 
Then verse 15 says, The kings of the earth and the great men, the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us. They clearly understood that they were experiencing not just natural disasters and natural calamities, but there was a supernatural cause to the things that they were encountering. And therefore, they were saying to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And in verse 17 says, For the great day of their wrath has come. And it leaves us this question at the end of chapter 6. And who is able to stand? Well, rhetorically speaking, the answer seems to be no one is able to stand. No one is able to withstand the wrath of God. No one is able to stand. However, that is not the correct answer. If we just stop at chapter 6 and we say who is able to stand, there's no one who is able to stand underneath the wrath and the judgments of God. But now we come to chapter 7, and in chapter 7, there are actually three groups of people who are able to stand. So we see, for example, in chapter 7, verse 1, and after this, I saw four angels. Well, where are they? What are they doing? You see it there in your Bible, chapter 7, verse 1? After this, I saw four angels standing where? On the four corners of the earth. And what we said was the four corners of the earth would be the compass points, north, south, east, and west. This is an idiom that describes and, and, uh, the entire world in every direction, in every way that it goes. And so we see that there are four angels who are standing at the four corners of the earth. And they're standing there and they're holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And there was another angel descending we saw last week, uh, ascending from the rising sun and having the seal of God. He cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea so they could harm the earth and the sea, but they could not harm the earth or the trees until... We have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. So this judgment was was set out, but then there was a pause or an interlude. And last week we learned that there's a group of people who by God's grace would be able to stand in that day in the midst of the tribulation. And these people are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So last week we went back to Genesis chapter 49. And in Genesis chapter 49, it says this. It says that these are the things that must happen in the end, at the end of the days. At the end of the days. And so what we saw is, is Jacob is prophesying under the inspiration of God. And he's basically saying that the Jewish tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, have to be present at the end of the time. So we come to Revelation chapter 7 and we see that there are 144,000 who are sealed by God. And we see, we saw last time that there were 12,000 from uh, from from in verse five, there were one hundred forty four thousand sealed, one hundred forty four thousand sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, and there it lists those tribes. So what we see in answer to the question of who is able to stand, the four angels are able to stand on the four corners of the earth. One hundred forty four thousand Jewish evangelists, and we will see them at work later on in our study of the book of Revelation. But we see that there are one hundred forty four thousand super evangelists, if you will, Jewish evangelists that God has chosen and marked and sealed and are able to stand in that day under the wrath and the judgments of God.
then we come to our passage for today in verse 9 because there's one more group of people who are able to stand. Who are able to stand. So again, the last verse of chapter 6 says, who is able to stand? Chapter 7, the angels are certainly able to stand. The 144,000, each from the 12 tribes, they're able to stand. And now we come to chapter 9. And after these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. And look what they're doing. They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And what are they wearing? They're clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. So here in this respite, if you will, in this interlude, now we're still going to come back to the seventh seal. We haven't forgotten that. It's in chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. So that comes with the breaking of the seventh seal. But between the sixth seal judgment and the seventh seal judgment is an interlude where God pours out His grace, God pours out His mercy, and God saves and sets apart a group of people, a segment of the population, both from the Jewish population and from 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. And now we have this other multitude and where did they come from? Where did they come from? Well, there they are standing before the throne and the Lamb. And verse 10 says, they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God. So here's John. Remember, he's caught up in a vision. And John is watching all these things unfold. And I don't know what happened if the people filed in or John just looked and all of a sudden there's this great multitude from every people, from every nation, tribe, and peoples. There they are. They're in white robes. They're waving palm branches. And they're giving praise and glory to God. And I bet John's question is the same question that that you and I would have. Who are these people and where did they come from? Where did they come from? Now remember, there they are in heaven and in the presence of God. And here they are saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So these people are saved. They know the Lord Jesus Christ. They are ascribing to Him glory. They are continuously praising God in His presence for who He is. They're dressed in white clothes, indicating that they have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. And just like it says in the book of Isaiah, though their sins be as scarlet, they have been washed white as snow. Who are these people? And where did they come from? And who are uh, who, who are these people? Look at what it says in verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? So these elders, now now before it says, John says, and I saw, so he observes, and he's commanded to write, and he writes. Now he's included in the vision. And now one of the elders are coming to him and asking him a question. Now, they're not asking him a question to test his knowledge. Now, I know that there are all kinds of jokes that when you go to heaven and you come to the pearly gates, St. Peter's going to be there and he's going to ask you these questions. That's not true. That's not true. No indication of that in Scripture. Uh, Yet, here is John in this vision and he gets to heaven and he sees these things and the elders say to him, Hey, who are these people? And where have they come from? And I'll bet John said, that's what I would like to know uh, as well. 
Look at his answer in verse 14. John said this, I said to him, My Lord, you know. Now we've got to pause here just a minute. Because John is talking to an elder and he says in my translation, My Lord, you know. But you'll notice if you have a, if you have a, a Bible that's designated this, you should. In, in my Bible, when it says my Lord, the L is a lowercase L, not a capital L, not capital L-O-R-D. It's lowercase. It's almost like John is just being polite and saying, Sir, that would be a good uh, 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 translation for us today. Shows respect and shows honor. Sir, sir, you know. And isn't that a good answer? Isn't that a good answer? I mean, after all, John just called up. He's been there. He's watching all these things unfold. Uh, he's probably not in a position to be giving a lot of answers, right? He's still taking it all in and learning himself. So rather than trying to come up with an answer, rather than making up an answer, he just simply turns back and he says, You know, and the elder said to me, Now, now look at this. Look at this. This is fascinating. These who are clothed in white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Alright, so let's think about this for just a moment. In the period of the tribulation, we've already seen that God saves 144 thousand Jews. So we have the Jewish segment. The idea here is is that these are Gentiles. Now remember in the Bible's designation there are really only two groups of people uh, in the world. You are either Jew or you're lumped into everybody else which means you are a Gentile. You are a Gentile. So because they are people from every nation, tribe, and peoples, and because they're standing, this group of people came out of the... Notice it doesn't say tribulation. It says the great tribulation. They came out of the great tribulation. This group of people... And and by the way, it must be more than 144,000. God can count to 144,000. God can count all of them and designate them. We don't know really. I mean, honestly, we don't know group would be a group of Gentiles. A group of Gentiles. Now, is there any indication in Scripture that there that this group would be there? It was easy for us when we looked at the Jewish group of people to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 49. And in Genesis chapter 49, where it talks about Jesus being the line of the tribe of Judah, it also talks about Him being the stone of Israel. Fantastic study in God's Word as well. That specifically relates relates to the first and the second coming of Christ. But is there an indication anywhere in Scripture that there will be another group that's going to be called out? And indeed there is. So let's go back to the book of Daniel. We're going to look in Daniel chapter 7 and kind of get an an idea... Um, if you were to go back to Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and this dream rattles him, and so he calls all the wise men to interpret the dream. And he says, if you can't interpret the dream, I'm going to kill you. So Daniel uh, and the others have a, a quick prayer meeting, and they come, and God gives him the uh, interpretation of the dream. But it's interesting because he says, he says, I'm not even going to tell you what the dream is, so you have to tell me what, what I dreamed, and you have to tell me the interpretation of it. And Daniel was indeed able to do that. And in chapter 2, there is this statue that is divided into four segments. This monolithic idol, if you will. And each of the sections of that represent a various kingdom. Because the king's kingdom that is uh, Nebuchadnezzar here is going to be demolished and destroyed even though he thought it would never uh, happen. But when we come over to Daniel chapter 7... It's a similar 
uh, interpretation of the dream, but this time, rather than being a, a monolithic idol, this time instead of being a statue in four sections, it's described as four beasts or four monsters. Now, we don't really have a word today that would help us to understand how fearful these creatures are. I mean, after all, even the word monster today has movies, you have movies like Monsters, Inc. that takes the fear away of monsters. And beasts, you think of animals. So we don't really have a word that I could think of here that would talk about the ferociousness and the fear that these creatures would have invoked in the vision of the four beasts. But why he so why he's describing and doing all these things? We come down to, um, uh, we come down to uh, we, this description in, in Daniel chapter seven. Daniel said, "I was looking in, in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and the four beasts were coming from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from behind the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it, and behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear." Verse 6, I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard. Verse 7, after this, I kept looking in the night vision. Behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And Daniel says, While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little horn, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boast. Deep down to verse 9. Look in verse 9. Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So we sang old ancient of days when we started our verse today. This is God who has taken his seat on the throne in heaven. This prophecy is relating to what we're seeing in Revelation 4 and 5 and following in 6 through 18. His, and then it describes him. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out before him. Now notice what it says here. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As, the, as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. And then I kept looking in the night visions, verse 13 says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And this is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who could come up to the Father, the Ancient of Days, seated on the throne. So you can see the similarities with Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 right here in Daniel chapter 7. But notice what it says here. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him, and to Him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Now look at this. And this, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. So what we're seeing here in Daniel chapter 7 is we're seeing the prophecy that we've read about 
coming in the vision to John in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. And what we see with this multitude, if we were reading this and we didn't have Revelation 7 to compare it with, when we, when we read Genesis chapter 49, when we study the end times, we'll be expecting the Jewish people to be there. And indeed they are. Revelation chapter 7, 1 through 8. And when we study the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, we can also expect that before Him will be a great multitude of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue attending to Him, and they were given to the Lord Jesus Christ, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." So when you look at the chronological flow of Daniel chapter 2 followed by Daniel chapter 7, we should, by the time we come to the book of Revelation, be expecting a great group of people and this great group of people are going to come before God and they're going to attend to Him. They're going to worship Him and adore Him and pour out their praise. And this group is not a Jewish group. It's not from the, it's not from the people of Israel. They're there. We saw that last week in the first group. This second group is a group of Gentiles. So as we study Daniel chapter 7, and as we did in our walk up to the book of Revelation, as I was reminded uh, from Yolanda on Wednesday, we've been studying the run-up to the book of Revelation and the book of Revelation with a few breaks since July of 2015. Nuts. What, what are we thinking? Who decided to do this study? Right. Remember, y'all were rejoicing when I announced that we were going to do this. Okay, so... When we come to Revelation chapter 7, based on Genesis 49, we ought to be expecting the 144,000 representatives of each of the 12 tribes. When we come to Revelation chapter 7, we also ought to expect a group of people from every nation, every tribe, and peoples of the earth. And that is exactly what we have. Now, where did these people come from? Because remember, this is not the church. Now, let's, let's remind us of a couple of things. Any person who has received the gift of salvation must come through the blood of Christ. No person is saved by their works. No, no person is saved by their heritage or who their ancestors are. Every person that is saved must be saved through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So these people, just like the 144,000, these Gentiles here are 100% equal to the church in terms of their status and salvation before God. Okay? Every promise that God has given about what's going to happen in the future, post-tribulation, all the blessings, living in the presence of God, all the promises of God's Word that pertains to you, pertains also to this group of Jews and this group of Gentiles. Now what separates the church from this group of people is not the ultimate reward and blessing in the presence of God. It's the promises that we have, that we have received prior to the tribulation starting. For example, in Revelation where it says that He would keep us from the hour of testing, that is a promise to the church. To be kept from the hour of testing is the promise of God, promise of Jesus to His church prior to the tribulation. And therefore, the church is called up into heaven so that they are right. They're kept out of that hour of testing. These who are saved in the tribulation, they are not promised to be kept from the hour of testing. They are going to be kept through the hour of testing and they are going to be kept unto God during that time, at which point He is 
through with them in terms of their purpose upon the earth and calls them home to heaven. Because of this, and because of the fact that there are Jews and Gentiles in the tribulation who are ultimately going to be saved and brought into the kingdom of God, it introduces some confusion in interpretation of the book of Revelation, which is why you will have some people who say that it is ridiculous that the church, you're just practicing escapism, that the church is going to be caught out and miss all of this because you American Christians can't handle pain anyway, right? And so you would rather think and believe that you're going to escape it when the Bible clearly says here in Revelation chapter 7, people from every nation tongue will be will go through the tribulation. Yes, even the, notice the adjective, the great tribulation. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But as I understand the Word of God, they are 100% Christians, same status before God that you and I have, but because we are saved prior to the tribulation, not by your doing, by the way, but by the grace of God and His timing in your salvation, then you and I, when this day comes, will be caught up Right? As Thessalonians teaches us, God's wrath will be poured out, and here in this interlude, 144,000 will be sealed. We're going to see how God uses them in the future, and this great multitude that comes out of the great tribulation. So if you look at our timeline, if you look at our timeline, what we've said is, is by the time you get to the fifth and the sixth seal, you are more than halfway through the tribulation period. So the three sets of judgments of God, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, they, they, they do not happen at equal rate, equal pace, equal consistency. As that seven-year period comes, they become more rapid and more severe and more devastating along the way. And here between the seal, the sixth seal and the seventh seal is a respite and interlude and God pours out His grace on this group of people. Notice what it says. It says in verse 14, these are the ones who didn't come out before the tribulation began, but they came out, they came out of the great tribulation. Now, to understand the great tribulation, let's just take a look at Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. You will remember in Matthew chapter 24 that Jesus was in the temple and he comes out of the temple. And he's sitting sitting on the Mount of Olives and his disciples come up uh, privately asking him, tell us in Matthew chapter 24 verse 3, when will these things happen and what will be, notice, the sign, singular, they just asked for one, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus, instead of giving one sign, He gives sign after sign after sign after sign. Jesus says, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in My name. I am the Christ and will mislead many. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Verse 7. All right, But all these things are merely the beginning of the birth pangs. Then, verse 9, they will deliver you to tribulation. Do you see that? They'll deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of My name. And at that time, many will fall away, will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And the law, but Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end he will be saved, and this gospel shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So Jesus adds these words in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, this is when the Antichrist who sets himself up in the temple and convinces people he is God, halfway through, at some point, he desecrates the temple. Um, he will desecrate the rebuilt temple 
which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the rooftop must, must not go down to get the things that are out of his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Verse 20, But pray that your flight will not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Verse 21, For then... So all of those things happen first in the tribulation and then at the halfway point of the tribulation, it becomes the great tribulation. Notice what it says. But verse 21, For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. So we go from the tribulation into the second half of the tribulation, which is called the great tribulation. And during this period of time, things will happen that has never happened in the history of the world from its beginning uh, and, and nor will it ever happen again, nor ever will. <coughs> How bad will it be? Verse 22, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But now look at this. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. For the sake of the elect. As we look at this particular passage of Scripture and we look at the signs referring to the return of Christ, when God pours out His wrath, if He did not offer this interlude, if He didn't offer this season of peace to mark between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, to mark the 144,000 and ultimately to bring this great group into the presence of God. They came out of the... Revelation chapter 7 says, they came out of the great tribulation. Verse 14 says, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Well, how did they get there? Is there some special way that they arrived? Some special way they received salvation? No. Notice what it says. Verse 14, And they have washed their robes and made them white. How? You see that in Revelation chapter 7? Verse 14, In the blood of the Lamb. Beloved, this group, they received their salvation the exact same way that you and I have received our salvation. There is no other way of salvation than through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we sang the song today, Are You Washed in the Blood? Your answer must be a definitive yes. It must be an unhesitatingly yes. Or you are not in a saving relationship with God. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from the main of veins and sinners plunged beneath the flow lose all their sin and shame. It is important that you understand. And we have whole denominations. We have whole denominations who will not sing about the blood. We have whole denominations who have removed the hymns that we sing today from their hymn book and from their vernacular because they think the blood is gory. Folks, the blood is gory, but it's also the path to glory. The blood is gory, but it leads to the path of glory. And just like these who were saved out of the great tribulation, and just like you and I who were saved before the tribulation period come, both must come through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, or you are not based on the authority of God's Word, in a saving, right relationship with God. Are you washed in the blood? Here in heaven, when He says, who are they? 
He doesn't say they are saved. He doesn't say these are good people. He doesn't say these are... He says these are people. These are people who washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And because of that, for this reason, notice what it says in verse 15, for this reason, what reason? The reason that this group, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, the reason that these people are standing in the presence of God is because they have washed their garments white in the blood of the Lamb. And for this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne... I love this picture. I love this picture. He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them. Oh, I love that. And it gives us some indication of maybe what they went through before they got there. Notice verse 16. They will hunger no longer. Remember the seal with the famine. Nor thirst anymore. Nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. And beloved, let me just simply say, remember now, here at the beginning, there are angels standing on the four corners of the earth and they're stopping the wind. And so all it can do is heat up and be stagnant and stale and miserable. And here's God saying, look, and they won't even experience any any heat like that ever again. Look, those who are not saved, they don't have a respite from the heat in all of their eternity. They are cast into the pit of hell where they will experience heat like they've never experienced before in all of eternity. And I don't care what the liberals say. The same Jesus that told us about heaven is the same one who told us about hell. And the one who describes heaven is also the one who described hell. You cannot believe Jesus about heaven without believing Jesus about hell. And therefore, there will be those who are not saved, who are not washed in the blood of the Lamb, who will be eternally separated from God, and they will experience intense heat unlike they've ever experienced before for all of eternity, and that's just the beginning of their problems. Now, why will they not beat down on them, nor to heat? Verse 17, for the Lamb in the center of the throne. Now, that's interesting. The Lamb in the center of the throne, hey, just like you and I, will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And I love this. In all that they've endured, in all that they went through, in all the things that are there, it says, and God will wipe away every tear from there. Do you believe this? Do you believe this to be absolutely true? If you do, then here's what you and I can believe today. If you believe that we are living in the last days, and if you and I believe, as we do, in the imminent return of Christ. Right? That means that He could come at any time. If you believe that these events could unfold and there's nothing hindering or stopping or holding it back and these events could unfold in our lifetime, then beloved, what I want you to know is is these people that are described here they will enter into that tribulation period as lost people. They will experience all the things that they will have experienced and God in His grace and in His mercy will save them and wash them in the blood of the Lamb and ultimately wipe away every tear. Now what I don't know is is I don't know how, because it doesn't say, how God is going to get the gospel to them, right? You don't see that. But here's a possibility. And notice I said, 
possibility. God can do whatever He wants to do, right? You and I have loved ones. We have family, friends, right? People that we live in the neighborhood with us who are lost. If Jesus comes back today and calls us home and they enter into the tribulation period lost, they're going to have to have the Gospel somehow. Could it be that God is going to use you? And could it be that God in His grace is going to use me to witness the people and to give a clear presentation of the Gospel and they will be angry at you and they will reject the Gospel that you share and they might treat you bad and you might lose your job and you might experience other negative consequences because you sought to clearly lay before them the choice between heaven and hell, between eternal life and eternal damnation, and they rejected you. Could it be that when you are caught up and you're gone and they are reflecting on the conversation that you had on that day, or they pick up that book with the Gospel in it that you put into their life, or they recall the stories and how angry they got because all you want to do was talk about Jesus and they, they did that. Could it be in that time you and I are gone, called up, that God will bring to mind, recall for them by His grace the Gospel that you shared and give them the faith this time to believe it and to receive it? Do you believe that there are people who are lost all around you today that could very well be this group of people who hear the Gospel from you you're called up, snatched away, and as they're processing your life in the next three years, if the Lord Jesus Christ comes back today, they take the gospel that you shared and God uses that to save them and to make them part of that innumerable crowd of people in heaven. Now for some of you, that ought to be good news because you have poured your life into sharing the gospel at every opportunity that you can. And you're praying that just because they rejected you now, that God will use that in some way in the future, even if it's before He comes or after He comes to do that. But others of you have lost people that you know are lost. And you know that you personally have never overcome the fear to have that hard conversation with them. You're afraid what they're going to get mad at you? They're going to be offended? Beloved, I would urge you, if you believe in the imminent return of Christ, and if you believe the truthfulness of God's Word, I would encourage you to go immediately and to go quickly and to sit down and have that conversation with them and present the Gospel of Christ to them and bring them to a point of decision. Bring them to a point of decision. Don't just share your testimony. Share the good news of the Gospel of Christ. Bring them to a point of decision. Will you today repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and surrender your life to Him to be in His presence for all of eternity? Or will you reject His grace and glory today and shut up and let them answer the question? If they answer the question positively and God is at work in their life, you've won your brother and sister to Christ. And if they reject you, they've at least had to hear you and think about what you're saying and consciously make the decision to reject Christ. And just because they reject it today, they will stand before God if they are condemned. And one of the things that will be held against them at their account is they cannot say that they never clearly heard and understood and had an opportunity to ask and have questions answered about the Gospel because you've done that. They can't say, I never knew. They can't say, I never heard that. I didn't get it. No one ever told me. Because, beloved, you have clearly told them. But also, when you bring them to that point of decision... 
And when you clearly lay out the Gospel, the facts of the Gospel as they are, and bring them to that point of decision, even in their rejection, they leave thinking about the things that you told them. They leave maybe mad at you, offended you, whatever it is. But they leave. And when they leave, the Gospel that you shared stays in their thoughts in their minds and perhaps by God's grace even when the events begin to unfold God uses that and won't it be wonderful to be in heaven and have people come into heaven and come to you and thank you for sharing the only saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ what hinders you from sharing the gospel if you believe such is true and such is possible. What lies ahead for them ultimately? If they receive the the Gospel, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, I don't know what that means. I don't know how He does it. If He just comforts and consoles them and wipes away their tears. Or as He wipes away their tears, He wipes away the memory of all the failures and shortcomings and things along those lines so that they have nothing more to weep over. I don't know. We don't know how God's going to do it. But beloved, the promise is true and it is clear with this group of people and ultimately to you and I as well, God will wipe away every tear. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for this interlude I'm thankful for this respite in the middle of the pouring out at the, of the first set of judgments at the, at the end, between 6 and 7. I'm thankful that God did this and God marked these 144,000 and God called up this great group of people from every nation, all tribes and peoples and tongues, and they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb of God. But I know we need the Lord, don't we? We need the Lord to be saved, and we need the Lord to keep us saved, because it was up to us. We forfeited a long time ago. But we also need the Lord to give us the courage and the strength to go to lost people and share the good news of the Gospel with them. May God do that. Let's stand for prayer. Heavenly Father, Thank You, Lord, for loving us. And thank You for sending Jesus to die on the cross for us. I pray, Father, that You would uh, indeed pour out Your blessing and that You would give us what we need to overcome uh, our fear and to receive courage and to pray and to witness and to serve like these do. They were serving all the days of their lives in your presence. May we do that as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.